Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. We're in Revelation chapter 11. And let's pause and let's pray as we get started. God, I thank you for this time, for this book, and for these people here. I pray that you would allow this to be inspiring to us, Lord, and help us to maybe have a little bit clearer understanding as what John was saying and how it can relate to us. I do thank you for all those people who have studied this book, have written so many things on it that have been helpful, who have uh, done the work as far as history is concerned so that we can get some background into what was taking place at the time. And I thank you for all these things being available to me and to us. Bless our time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's you know, been said that out of all the books in the world, the Bible is probably one of the more difficult ones to understand. And in all the books in the Bible... The book of Revelation is probably one of the more difficult to understand. And in all the chapters of the book of Revelation, chapter 11 is probably the most difficult to understand. So you guys are fortunate. You are here on the night where the most difficult chapter and the most difficult book and the most difficult book in the world. Um, We'll be discussing those things. But I I don't think it's something that we uh, have to stay in the dark end. So let's start in verse 1. It says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses And they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the water into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Again, let's keep in mind the type of book this is. This is a book of imagery. It's a book that's meant to capture imagination. It's a book that is meant to be 
provoking our imagination. And if we get locked into a literal interpretation, we have some real troubles here. We have people breathing fire and all kinds of things going on. But if we recognize some of the imagery, it helps us actually to see things a little bit more profoundly and a little bit clearer. The measuring of the temple, it echoes some prophetic actions that happen in Ezekiel chapter 40 as well as Zechariah 2. It has nothing to do with the actual temple in Jerusalem or a temple in heaven as we saw earlier in chapters 4 and 5. In fact, the early church right away began to understand that they themselves were the temple of God. It was something that was communicated, was embraced and understood. And so by the time John is writing this, it would have well been understood when they hear the idea of the temple, they're thinking of humanity who follows after Christ being the temple. Um, But there is a definite significance taking place here. There is a place where the worship takes place, and then there is a place where the witness takes place. The place of worship takes place in the holy place and in the the center of the temple. The outer court was the court for the Gentiles, and that was supposed to be a place of witness. Throughout this book, we've seen that in the presence of God, there is this awareness of the martyrs, those who have suffered. Their prayers are like incense going up before the throne of heaven. And on the outside, we've seen persecution. Those who have suffered, who have endured to the end and have been faithful, we've seen the not giving up even though they were going to persecute and kill some people. And so there is this understanding that in the world they are living in, this outer court, the place of witness, there is struggle and persecution, but in the place of worship before God, there is that worship that takes place. And you're not free from the persecution and struggle in this outer court that is taking place. They don't get to enjoy the same securities as they do in the presence of God in the place of worship that's taking place. And and so the outer court, the place of witness, is going to be trampled on for three and a half years, a symbolic number, right? Half of the seven, which stands for completeness. And here, broken down into 42 months or 1,260 days, just as Ezekiel's measuring of his visionary temple was a way of marking out the place where God was going to come to dwell, John is doing this, marking out this human temple, this community, and way of saying that God will honor and bless this people with his presence. Even though all this is happening, it's his way of saying it is half of the complete number, but it's still going to be part of this temple. And the role of this people has been pointed out throughout the early chapters, and it'll be more even in the chapters to come, that the call of God's people is to bear faithful witness. That is what our calling is. And so faithful witness to Jesus, faithful witness to the Lamb, the call of God's people is to bear that witness, even though it might go through suffering or potential death.
We had to maintain that witness. The seven letters in chapter 2, we saw in chapter 3, there was a promise to over and over again the special reward to those who conquered. And that is the people who followed Jesus and who achieved victory by his death and overcame the persecution that was there. And so as this opens up in chapter 11, we see this picture of the temple being measured. We see it being trampled, and we see these two witnesses who have this incredible power. But we need to continue on with some of these things that are taking place. Look at verse 7. Now, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, attack the two witnesses, and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, again, a significant number, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their body and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is to come. So who are these two witnesses? And what do they represent? I think there are two character scriptures, two characters in scripture that stand out and fill the meaning of these two most clearly. I think one is Moses who stood up to Pharaoh, a pagan king of Egypt. He demonstrated God's power by the plague, which we already saw echoed in chapter 8 and 9, and there's some allusions to some of those plagues in the first few verses here. The other is Elijah, who stood up to Ahab, the really pagan king of Israel, and demonstrated God's power um, by praying for drought, right? So there was no rain, which we saw earlier, and then he prayed that there would be rain, and he called fire down from heaven, Um, These two seem to be very connected in examples of what they're like in description to the witnesses that are here. I don't think that John means literally that Moses and Elijah would return uh, to the earth and carry these things out. Um, That is what I hope we've already seen, right, as we're going through. That's not the type of book this is. That's not how these illustrations are. I don't think it is too literal people. I think it is figurative. And I think being figurative does not make it less. It actually makes it more. 
and giving us the ability to understand things a little bit more. Even the transfiguration of Jesus, remember Moses and Elijah were seen and the disciples were there with Jesus and Peter spoke up and he says, we should make a tabernacle, we should make an altar for you and for Moses and for Elijah. And then there was a thunder and the voice of God said, this is my son, hear him. There was a cloud and they were gone, only Jesus was there. The witnesses were taken up in that cloud apparently or disappeared in the cloud and then the disciples actually came down to, to be that witness, as that witness. And so John is saying that the prophetic witness of the church, in tradition with Moses, in tradition with Elijah, will perform powerful signs, will bring about change to the kingdoms that are in rule, right? They will bring about the change of lives, just as Moses was used by God to change and redirect the nation, just like Elijah was used by God to deliver the nation from the, the Baal worship and those things and to stand for the truth, we see that that is going to be the case with the example of these two witnesses. And because of that, because of their witness to who Jesus is, their example to change the lives of people, to change really the core of a nation because of the change of people, it torments those people, the unbelieving world around them. And it comes to the head by them being martyred by the beast who comes from the abyss who we'll meet later on. Okay, Really, the beast is talking in a figurative way, I believe, of Rome and, again, the pagan world and some of those things that we'll, I think, see clearer later on. So what's the point, right? The point that John is wanting us, I believe, to understand is, is this, that God is given, that God gives and protects those who are faithful to their calling and that prophetic witness that he gives to them. It doesn't mean that a person will not be spared from suffering or even death, but rather that this suffering and even death itself, like that of Jesus, who the church worships and follows, will be the ultimate prophetic sign of how the world will be brought to the glory of God. How does this happen, right? Three and a half days, half of seven again, the world's going to celebrate the victory over the church. There's going to be this, yes, we did away with them. Yes, we don't have to answer to the church, but God will act in a new way. God is doing something new. The vision of Ezekiel 37 where God breathed and the bones came together and the corpses came back to life. Right? God is doing something new, so even though it is seeming to be weak, and even though it was seeming to be dead, it turned out it was very, very strong. And this is really a very clear picture of what happened in early Rome in those first three centuries, when Christianity went through intense persecution, and the whole purpose was to crush 
those who followed Jesus so that they would stop. And what ended up happening? It ended up spreading more and more and more till eventually Rome conceded that Christianity was not going to be stopped. And so they said, well, we will now claim this as our religion. And so this breathing of new life into these two witnesses is very symbolic to God breathing his life into his church. Also a vision of Daniel 7, where God's people coming on a cloud to heaven. It represents the vindication of the church after it's been martyred, after it's gone through persecution, and the completed witness they've given of Christ. How did Christ live and honor God by giving his life? How do these witnesses honor God? They do so by giving their life. And that is the witness that is taking place here. They're completing that witness by giving their lives. Notice in verse 13, it says, At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and the tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The meaning is that the world who is watching will actually come to a place of conversion. That is what's meant by terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. In other places in Revelation and other you know, places in Scripture, the idea of people coming in fear and trembling to glorify the God of heaven is an indication of a true turning to God. It is making that change and the idea of fearing God and trusting in him over whatever else they were fearing and believing and following. The martyr witness of the church, in other words, will succeed where the plagues had failed, where the persecution or the, the horrendous things that we've seen taking place had failed. This is how the nations will come to glorify the creator. This is how the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of the Lord, which is what we see taking place in verse 15. We see that showing up as it's going to be happening here. So this is a real pivotal point in the book. And it's central to John's theme throughout this book. The lamb opened the seals of the scroll and all kinds of terrifying things happened when he did. The trumpets have blown. Terrible things of different sorts have come to pass. But now the scroll has been handed to John. Remember, we talked about that last week. And John prophesies in a symbolic way, the measuring of the temple and like a parable, the story of the two witnesses, the kingdom of God. And all these things kind of have already been spoken in chapter 4 and 5, and it's becoming a reality on earth as it is in heaven. Notice also that in verse 13, there's more symbolism. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, if 10 be found, will you spare the city? I'll spare it for even 10. And here we see that it's a tenth of the city fell, nine-tenths were saved. And so there is kind of a reversal that's taking place from what happened in Genesis chapter 18. 
Now, however, only the tenth of the city is fallen. The other is saved. When God was judging Israel through Elijah, and Elijah runs fleeing Jezebel, and he says, I'm all alone. What does he say? God says to him, I have 7,000 that have yet to bow their knee to Baal. Here, 7,000 die, and the rest are saved. You see, there's a change that's taking place. The majority is now the minority, and the minority is now the majority. And so there's a changing that's taking place, and as this starts to happen, we start to see that God is doing something, but he's doing it in a new way, differently. And so suddenly out of the smoke and fire of all that's happened in the earlier chapters, a vision is kind of developing, a vision of the creator God as the God of mercy through whom the lamb was slain and the witnesses followed in their martyrdom. The way is made for the celebration here at the end of the chapter, which seems like it should be the end of the book, really. Chapter 11 ends, and you could almost say the end, and that would it's very similar to chapter 19 in a lot of the things that are said. Because, remember, all this is now pausing for the last trumpet. The sixth trumpet we saw in chapter 9, chapter 10, and this portion of chapter 11, we have kind of this little intermission, declaration of what God's doing, and now we have chapter 11, the seventh trumpet in verse 15. In verse 15, it says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and with his temple, within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. <clears throat> Verse 15 is a huge statement. Notice that it says that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. The word kingdom is singular, unlike the King James translation that has it plural. It actually is singular. The vision that John is passing on is a global vision. It's one that's encompassing all the kingdoms as one. The kingdom that God has established through Jesus is not only a collection of kingdoms ruling over this nation or that nation. It's a universal rule, rule over the world. Taking the whole of the kingdom of the world and claiming it back to himself. To rule, And so 
this incredible decisive moment that's taking place in the chapter here could have come at, again, the end of this book. This seems like, okay, this is the end. We should be done with the book now. But it, it doesn't end here. We've got a bunch of chapters left to go. And again, it shows us this isn't a chronological series of events. This isn't something that is meant to be placed in sequential order. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, this happened. It's a layering on of things. And then what John is going to do is he's going to take another perspective and look at these things again in another way to help us get a different picture of understanding. And we're dealing with different views of a vision with this one really prominent reality, the point of the whole thing, that through the terrible things and trouble that the world has, God is establishing through Jesus a people who, following the example of the Lamb, are to bear witness to God's kingdom through their own suffering in which the world will be brought to repentance and faith so that ultimately God will be king over all. Unlike all those movies and all those maybe teachings we've heard where, you know, there's going to be this fire and burning and destroying of everything, uh, God is out to destroy the earth and then he's going to start over, bring a new heaven down. We're seeing that the way the battle is won isn't with violence or the plagues or the things that have been causing humanity trouble. They didn't bring repentance back in Egypt. They're not bringing repentance in the world now in the troubles we see. What brings about repentance is the way the church suffers in love. The way those who follow Jesus give their lives for this cause. And they are concerned more about Christ and the example they want to bear for him than they are about their own power, their own rule, their own economic achievement or success or confidence. And this is an important thing that we need to see because I believe the kingdom of heaven is probably the most misunderstood theme in the church today, or one of them. You know, a large number of people, and I was very much one of them, believe that the kingdom of heaven means that God is going, is in charge of a place called heaven that's somewhere else, as opposed to this messy place called earth. There's the place you go to when you die, and there's this place you have to live in until you die. And that the main aim of life was to enter the kingdom of heaven in the sense of going to heaven when you die. And I think this might be why there's so many weird conceptions of the book of Revelation. Because to fit that idea, you have to come up with some wild interpretations. You have to come up with some real sleight of hand in this book to get to that kind of a conclusion because there's a lot of these things that don't fit that theme or that idea. 
And I think God's kingdom is not simply designed for heaven because God is the creator of the whole world, right? And his entire purpose is to reclaim the whole world as his own and to see it on the way to become the place that he always intended it to be. I mean, that's really the message of the Gospels in a large sense, is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I think that this is an important part to understand. I mean, what does he say <clears throat> here? He talks about nations, the time has come, verse 18, where he says, the time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Interesting verse. Destroy those who destroy the earth. How are they destroying the earth? I think people destroy the earth when they destroy God's intention in creation. I think people destroy the earth by allowing humanity to suffer and to go through things that God in, never intended for humanity to deal with and go through. And so when people are sick because of even pollution or injured because of um, how they are treated and enslaved, I think those are all ways of destroying the earth. Whenever it causes harm to God's intention for creation, it's destroying the earth. And so we're having to, to deal with those things. And there's a lot of political implications here. This isn't just about some place in the sky. This is about how places are ruling here on earth. Are they destroying the creation and God's intention for humanity? If they are then this is speaking directly into that. It's not about a private spirituality that, you know, is here for us or an escape salvation for us in the future. This is about the living God confronting the powers of the world with the news that he is now in charge and he is taking back what belongs to him. And that the mode of his rule is that which was established by Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb, the suffering love conquers all is the message as powerful and as uncomfortable as that seems. Because none of us want to suffer. None of us want to be persecuted. But unless we are willing to love till it hurts, we don't show the example of Christ. And that's difficult. That's uncomfortable. But... Is it true? Is that how things change? I mean, historically, the very early church, the first three centuries of the church, had the greatest growth and the most impact in culture that the church has ever had. 
it also went through intense persecution. Right? Roman Empire was doing its best through persecution, through torture, through killing, to crush the movement of Christ followers. And the blood of the martyrs, someone has said, was actually the seed of the church. Right? It, it is what God has used to grow what he has done. That the church has grown because of the seed of martyrdom that took place in those early centuries. I had a conversation with a gentleman Monday night after the men's group that we did, and I don't know why people come up to me and they it seems like, I don't know if it's something I say or the way I say it, but they always ask me these questions that I totally disagree with, or they make these statements that I totally disagree with. And he came up and he really liked what my talk was about, and he commended me, and, and he was talking about coming to the church and stuff. And I was like, oh, that's great, that's great. And he goes, you know, today we've got so many people who they don't preach the gospel, and they don't preach repentance, and, you know, they don't teach the word, and, you know, you can't know God without reading your Bible. And I'm like, hmm, you know, I'm just sitting there listening, and he says that. And I said, well, you know, the people didn't have the Bible until about 300 years after Christ. And the church did really good, even without the Bible. I'm not saying the Bible isn't good, but I just don't think that statement is true. And he conceded. He goes, yeah, you got a good point there. And I think it's important for us to understand what happened in that first three centuries. There was an abandon to Christ. There was a, a willingness to give their lives because this was unlike anything they had seen or known. And so history is bearing witness to these things. It's been that way time and time again, right? That the church gives its life and life is born from those who give their lives for Christ. In John's vision in this chapter, it's already happened. Notice the difference in verse 17 when he says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. It's something that is happening as opposed to chapter 1 in verse 4 where he says, The one who is and was and who is to come, and it was a future tense. Right? And so John is writing here as if it's a done deal saying there is a completion. Now, he's not saying it's a done deal, but this is what the culmination of those who give their lives for the gospel will produce. And that's his point here. From who is to come to has begun to reign. The example of the lamb who was slain, those who have been martyred and been faithful witnesses, have demonstrated to the world that God is God, that Jesus is Lord and King, and that the world has responded by glorifying the God of heaven. It is the sacrifice, it is the love of God that leads us to repentance. And anything that shows the love of God, it produces that same thing. It is not the plagues, it is not the fire, it's not the locusts who torment, it's not the plagues of Egypt, It's the grace of God that changes the hearts of people. But still to be done is this bringing an end to the people who destroy the earth. That still has to happen, 
that's still taking place. And this is the ultimate meaning of God's judgment, right? God's judgment is bringing an end to those who are destroying. Now think about that. Think of the difference. What your thoughts are of judgment, the judgment of God is for those who do wrong things, right? I mean, the judgment of God, in my mind, has often been just in a negative. It is, you know, squashing the things that people want to do and have fun doing and telling them they're wrong and doing it, and you can't enjoy those things. But God's judgment is directed very specifically at all that spoils his creation. God's judgment is intended for those who are destroying what he has created. He's judging these things, and judgment actually, if you were to put it, it has a reason it's being judged is because it doesn't meet the standard of God's intention. God intended creation to be this, and it is not being that, and so it falls under God's judgment because it's failing or destroying what God's intention is. God's judgment is the direct result of those that are destroying his creation. The purpose at the root of chapter 4 and 5 are for creation to be rescued, right? That includes humanity and everything that touches humanity. And then the song that the elders sing, they start another moment, again, similar to what they've done in chapters 4 and 5, and we see the lightning and the thunder and the earthquakes. And this is transition language, right? This is something different is happening. When earth trembles at the power of this revelation, these are like birth pains, right? This is something is changing because God is doing something powerful. And this is the only time in the book that God says that God's temple in heaven was opened. And it reveals the throne room, and with its song of triumph, the Ark of the Covenant is inside. And the reason this is significant is because it is pointing out that God is true to his promise, that God was going to be present with his people in their journeys throughout the wilderness and into the lands, and God is going to be present all the way till he brings us to his kingdom come. That he is true to his promise, that he did what he said he would do, and that it comes to this place of completion. And it seems like this book should just end right here. Everything's good. We can go home now. We know how it's going to end. But notice it doesn't give us so much a how-to. It just says a where-to. Right? It doesn't give all the details of what's going to happen. It just gives us the end of what it's supposed to look like. And so we have to live in the how-to to get to the where-to. And that's where we find ourselves, living in this place where we want the kingdom of God to be known. How do we make it known? By living lives like Christ, by giving of ourselves. The early church had to do this to the point of suffering and martyrdom. We don't have to do that, but maybe there's a different kind of martyrdom that needs to take place. Maybe we have become too comfortable 
in our lives or trying to, to gain a life for ourselves, that gospel good news of God loving and caring for people has become secondary or third or fourth or down the line. And it's not a primary point of our life. It doesn't mean we should quit our jobs and not be successful. But what is motivating us in how we live and what we do? Is it to get more? Is it to consume? Because we're going to see as we start moving into these next chapters that there is a mentality that is going to be challenged. There is a beast that comes out, and who, what this beast represents is some things that maybe we find very similar to the world that we live in and the culture that we live in. And we'll get to that in the chapters to come. Any thoughts or questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I think is worse than the things we're seeing weather-wise, well, I think of like what's happening with all the priests, you know, in Pennsylvania, the things that are being done by people who in the name of God are supposed to be protecting people. You know, I, I think those are as much crimes against the earth as anything. Um, but these things coming out are progress. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it's, it's, a change, and it's a good change, but it's a difficult change. But there was a time when those things didn't come out. Computers are ruining the world. Yeah, I, I think it reveals, you know, it's like that saying, you know, ultimate power corrupts, or absolute power corrupts absolutely. But I think really it's absolute power reveals absolutely. You know, what you have power to do and you will do shows who you really are. And so... I think when you have the ability, whether it's through computer or through power of a position, it reveals what's happening, you know, who you are and what you do with that power. And so um, I think those are things that we see. Again, though, I think this is, I think there's progress being made. Now, it's not soon enough, and it doesn't mean that, yeah, the world's a great place. You know, there's plenty wrong to go around. But there was a time when these things wouldn't have been noticed. There was a time when, you know, um, human trafficking wasn't even an awareness. You know, there was a time when the slavery or um, even the refugee crises that would take place, because what's happening in Syria has happened millions of times, right, um, wasn't even something that people took note of. And so now there's awareness, and there seems to be a... a a large amount of people that are wanting these things to stop and making people aware of them and those kinds of things. And I think that's a move in the right direction. Um, still leaps that need to take place. But this is a good moving forward, and I think the church should be the driving force to these changes that take place. You know, we should be the ones to stop human trafficking. I mean, I think looking at slavery in the United States and seeing the William Wilberforces and others who were followers of Christ who made the significant uh, efforts to stop that is a testament, right? I mean, that's what the church should be doing. Those kinds of things that bring about a, a saving of humanity. And it's a, a judgment to the church that allowed those things to continue. 
and a judgment to the church that turns a blind eye to the things that are happening, you know, whether it be in the Catholic church with some of the things that are happening, because it happens in Calvary chapels, it happens in Baptist churches, it happens all over, right? I can, I know people who have been in these situations. And so if we don't make this known, if we don't stop it, if we just try to save face or say, no, we're, it's okay, it's not a big deal, then we're, judgment falls on us. I'm challenging Christianity. Christianity is not the intention that Jesus had. I, I, I think the Christianity that we see needs to be challenged. I think a lot of it. I think a lot. This whole idea of the kingdom of heaven, right? I'm going to die and go to heaven. I'm going to be raptured and get out of here. I just need to get out of this place. That is a total departure from the attitude of Christ and the disciples who were giving their lives for the people in the world. And now there's just like, oh, man, can't wait to get out of here. And, you know, Lord's going to come and take me out. It's like, really? That's what we're living for is to get out of this? There's something wrong in that mentality. And so I think the reason there isn't prayer in school has nothing to do with you know, people being against Christianity. I think it has a lot to do with Christians not being an example of prayer and life and love that people wanted to follow. You know, the things that happen in the name of Jesus to people, um, whether it be uh, the mistreatment of people of color, whether it be how they treat women, uh, whether it be dishonesty in business or politics, all these things people look at and say, if that's Christianity, I want no part of it. Get it out of my school. Get it out of my life. I want nothing to do with it. And rightly so. The church grew up those first three centuries with persecution. It wasn't prayer in school. There was you don't live and believe in Jesus, and it grew. And we're thinking if you take prayer out of school, it's going to stop us. The reason we have so much violence is because they took prayer out of school. They were killing Christians, and they grew, and it grew and spread. That is a cop-out, and it is not seeing things in the right light, in my opinion. Right? Because how could people who didn't have schools to go to in the first place weren't allowed to pray or meet together at all without going through intense persecution. How did they in that circumstance change the world, and we with the voice that we have can't? But they're all also influenced by the good that they see. See, they're not without the image of God. They're not without the image of God within them. And when they see the image of God show up in someone who's doing good things, I know a lot of young kids who want to go and help orphans, who want to go and serve in food banks or whatever, because they like how it makes them feel, right? And so they're not all bad seeds, I think the image of God is in them still, and he's wanting us to help that grow. We have to live lives that they see and they say, oh, I like that. That look at how that person loves. Look at how that person cares, right? And I believe that, the, again, the image of God that is in every human being has the opportunity or sees when God is visible in action. 
And it doesn't matter if they're in India. It doesn't matter if they're in the United States. It doesn't matter if they're growing up in a home with violence and drugs and all kinds of junk. A person still has the image of God, and when they see it, they can pull themselves out of that because they are wanting what God has put within them. Well, no, we don't always do it, right? There's the freedom to choose. But we have to believe that God wants that, and we have to do what we can to help that take place. That is our job. And this is one of those chapters where I think that the kingdom of heaven showing up isn't something that happens in the future when we leave. It's something that starts showing up in humanity when the people live the lives that God has called them to live. I think that's the point of this chapter. And so, you know, this has been a change for me. Um, but I see it clearly in Scripture. You know, I, I don't see this escape mentality by Jesus or the disciples. I, I see this mentality that God is wanting to establish his kingdom through us. And it will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. How is that going to happen? Well, it's going to happen with me acting that way, living that way, doing the things that Christ did. You know, And then, yeah, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. When this physical dies, I do have the presence of God that I'm going to be with. And I don't know how that new body and thing works out, but it isn't to escape. Yeah, well, it says there's a new heaven, a new Jerusalem comes down. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get to those things. But again, the whole point is not so much that there's a real city that's going to come floating down out of the sky, right? I mean, because that's what we think. But what is, what's happening, the rule that God has intended is going to show up. The new Jerusalem isn't like, oh, there's a Jerusalem and it's just going to be, you know, new buildings and stuff. It's a new intention that God had for it. You know, but I don't think there's going to be, oh, look at there, here it comes. Just like these, you know, two witnesses breathing fire. I don't think they're fire-breathing humans. I think it's declaring how impactful their words were, that it did ignite these things and set that fire. And so if I don't see the imagery here and I get locked into a literal translation of all these things, then I have some strange things that come out of it, right? Some strange ideas that come out of these things, where if I see imagery as I think it's intended, I think it makes more sense in the world that we knew they were living in and in the world that we know we're living in. So some thoughts there. Joe, you got any thoughts? No? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and really... We don't believe the Bible literally. People who say they do don't. Jesus said if you pluck, you know, your eye offends, you pluck it out. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of hyperbole in there, right? And, and things that are meant to be looked at, you know, with wonder and spark imagination, yeah, and those kinds of things. And so, you know, not everyone takes the Bible literally. In fact, no one should, you know, in those cases. Um, otherwise, yeah, you'd have some messed up things going on. Yeah, and, and so, and then people, you know, will try and make, well, do you believe, you know, Jonah was actually swallowed by a big fish or not? It's like, well, that's not the point of the book, right? Whether I believe it or not is pointing to something 
other than what's being said there. Was the earth made in seven literal days or not? That wasn't the point of Genesis. If I make that the point, I am taking away from the intention, not helping it. You know, and so that's where I think we get locked into these things where, no, we, I, I want to, it's almost like we worship the Bible, yeah. you know, instead of recognizing the only authority the Bible has is the authority that God would give to it. Because there's only one who has authority, right? And so if God does not give authority to Scripture, there is no authority in Scripture. Now, I believe God does give authority, but we have to look at God and not just the Scripture. Jesus said, you search the scriptures and you think you have eternal life, but they're that which you speak of me. And he was telling them, you have mistranslated things and misinterpreted things because you didn't see them through me. And I think the church does the same thing today. I think we do that even with the New Testament. We make the New Testament a new law, you know, a new Torah, and we follow this new Torah, and we don't interpret it through Christ. And then we come up with some pretty you know, difficult things. Yeah, no, a lot of stories were, were until they were finally written down and compiled by Moses, but, I mean, it's believed by a lot of people, and I don't know how they come up with some of these things, um, but they, a lot of people I've heard this say believe that Exodus was the first book and that Genesis was written after Exodus because they wanted to explain how the children got to where they were, you know. And so it's like, what? Genesis wasn't the first book written, you know, and Job is the oldest book, you know, in scripture and the writings of Paul are predating the gospels, you know, and it's like, well, man, it's all chronologically out of order here. Again, we, we, we want things all nice and neat and put them in place to make it all look perfect, but we have to take it as it is and how it comes. Well, let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the questions, for the, Lord, thinking that is provoked by your scripture. And I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to wrestle with these things, to grow in these things, learn from these things, and help me to communicate things clearly. Lord, 10 years, who knows what I will see and how I will see it. Lord, I trust that you will continue to illuminate and direct and guide us, Lord, in Scripture and our understanding and following you. Today, we are grateful for what we have understood and what has brought us closer to you and to your intention for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.